How many of you are parents? How many of you are parents with children? <laughs> How many of you are aware of the old adage, if you make a mistake, it's okay, just don't repeat it the second time? Tell you a quick story, and as I do, some of you have probably heard it before, some of you might not. I'm going to warn you that as I tell you this story, you might wonder how in the world I became a pastor, and I'm going to tell you that it's by the mercy and grace of God. Several years ago, I was headed off to college, couldn't wait to get to be with my friends, had an opportunity to drive from Colorado to Pennsylvania, where I went to school, and obviously my parents knew that I would be heading out at a certain time although that time had been finagled. What they didn't know was that I had gone and purchased a motorcycle without them knowing, and in order to get that motorcycle, I had to leave and get a hitch put on the car to trail a trailer to get that motorcycle from Colorado all the way to Pennsylvania. So interestingly enough, what I did was leave with a friend. We went, got this motorcycle, and called my parents at the estimated time that we were supposed to be at the University of Kansas to see my friends, letting them know that we had arrived. We weren't even close. Long story short, I got the motorcycle to Pennsylvania and enjoyed it for a brief period of time until I got a phone call from my father. My father was concerned because he noticed a large sum of money on my bank account had been withdrawn, and he was wondering why that money was missing. Interestingly enough, I said, hey dad, can I talk to mom? <laughs> so in talking to mom, I basically tried to tell her that it was because of fraternity dues and that they had gone up. And my dad got on the phone and he said, Trevor, if your fraternity dues have gone up that much, you are coming home because you are drinking too much beer. <laughs> now, on this, I finally came clean, told my parents that I had bought a motorcycle, thinking that I was essentially going to be removed from school and drawn home, but basically, my dad in his wisdom said simply this, Trevor, you have a car and a motorcycle. You don't need both. Sell one of them wise person. I actually had some wisdom, recognizing that as winter was coming in Pennsylvania, it probably wouldn't be a good thing to own a motorcycle. So I tried to sell it. Came to find out that I was going to get a fourth of the price of what I bought it for. Went back to my dad and said, what do I do? And he said, well, you can store it and we can take it back and bring it back to Boulder and you can receive a little bit better price for it. So I did. Interestingly enough, what I'll tell you is this. Over Christmas, we had to drive it home, so my dad flew out with me. We put it up in a trailer, and in West Virginia, because we were trailing the motorcycle behind a Honda that had 157,000 miles on it, the clutch goes out. And we are stuck in West Virginia, and Christmas is coming. You would have thought that my dad, at that point, was going to, what? Disown me. Well, I'll spare you the story. We obviously get it fixed. We get home just in time for Christmas, and I am honestly in tears. I go to my parents and I say, I made a huge mess, thinking that at that point in time, that's when my dad was going to essentially 
release all of his anger and frustration on me. And so he turned to me and he said these two things. He said, number one, you made a mistake. Don't do it again. And then he turned to me and he winked and he said, you want to know what your biggest mistake was? You should have bought a Harley. <laughs> Why am I bringing this up? I'm talking about the grace of God, but I'm also talking about repeating a mistake. And we are going to be looking in Ezra chapter 9 at the culminative effect of why the people of God had been taken into exile in the first place. We've been traveling through the book of Ezra for the past 14 weeks. We are about ready to finish in Ezra chapter 10. You'll notice this morning that the title of my message is Repentance Times 10. Interestingly enough, for you type A people who are here next week, the title of that sermon is Repentance Times 100. When you make a mistake, when you are in sin, one of the things that I would ask is simply this. Do you continue to repeat it? I want to ask you a quick question. What does sin mean to you? And what we're going to look at this morning is a question that we're going to discover in Ezra 9 that I think should really convict all of us. I'm going to warn you now, lovingly, this is not a feel-good message. This should convict us all. The question that we are asking is simply this. What is the godly response than we, when we recognize that we are in sin? And friends, what I want to ask you is this. Do we even care? Lovingly, what I want to tell you right now is oftentimes I see that we tend to placate sin or we tend to rest too much on the mercy and grace of God. Now, I want to be careful because the mercy and grace of God is wonderful. Christ has died so that we might receive eternal life. But what I want to also tell you is that if we have a relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if we are walking with Him, if we care about Him, and in our life we are convicted that we are in sin, we should care. We should change. We should turn. We should repent. And friends, what I want to tell you is this, particularly if in having had that sin, God has worked in our lives and broken us and then restored us back to himself and yet we continue to repeat it or not care and we are convicted of it again, we should change. We should cry out to God. It should break our hearts because it breaks his Friends, I'm going to take a minute. We're going to read Ezra chapter 9 again. I'm going to do what I can just to kind of give some context for those of you that are new or visiting. Ezra is a book about the restoration of God's people. Interestingly enough, it follows 2 Chronicles. And literally, as you read the end of 2 Chronicles and turn the page to Ezra, you're not skipping a beat. Now, why is Ezra so important? It is the story of how God brings his people back to himself. Why is that important? Well, before God's people were living in the land that he had given them, but they began to say, you know what? We'll take a little bit of God, but we're going to start adding a lot of the world or other gods. And little by little, God began to become upset. And so he goes to the prophet Isaiah and says, hey, I have a message for you to give to the people of God. And essentially, Isaiah's message is this. 
Hey, people of God, you have taken up other gods. You have essentially molded things in or brought things in that are impure, unholy, and sinful. And because of that, I'm going to raise up an army. That army is going to come, and it is going to destroy your land, and you will then be exiled as people to another land. And so the people of God, you would think, would say, huh, maybe we should take heed to this. Do they? No, they blow God off. They just say, whatever, no big deal. And sure enough, years go by, in fact, hundreds of years go by, before what Isaiah said occurs. People began to wonder if God was real. People began to realize, wonder if Ezra really knew what he was talking about. And then lo and behold, gentlemen, a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians come and they conquer the people of God. The temple is destroyed, the place where they live is destroyed, and they then are sent into exile for a period of 70 years as prophesied in Jeremiah. However, Isaiah also says this, even though I am going to come and I am going to have an army and a kingdom come and destroy you and destroy the temple and put you in exile for 70 years, because of my faithfulness and love for you, after 70 years, I'm going to raise up another army who will conquer that kingdom and that army will return you back to your land. And sure enough, as was stated, the Medo-Persian army under King Cyrus comes and defeats the Babylonian army and a decree is issued by Cyrus for the people of God to return back to Jerusalem. Hence, the story of Ezra begins. The story of Ezra is about the people of God returning back to their land, back and restoring the temple, the altar, and their place of worship. But may I remind you, the reason that all of this occurred was because the people of God were in sin. Through the story of Ezra, all of these chapters are about the faithfulness and the sovereignty of God drawing God's people back to himself through the means of the utilization of two kings and kingdoms. Don't miss the fact that in all of this, the sovereignty of God, the love of God, the covenant that God has with his people isn't broken. God is constantly saying, come to me, be restored to me, be mine. However, in being mine, I'm asking, no, I'm telling you, be holy. Set yourself apart. Don't make the same mistakes that you made before that caused you to be in exile. So the people of God come, they have it all together, they start doing worship, things are good, things are solid, they are worshiping God, all is well, and what? We move off into the promised land. No. What we discover in Ezra 9 is that the people of God, little by little, had been falling back into sin falling back into the patterns that they had previously, where they were taking a little bit of God and a whole lot of the world and not caring and not worrying about being set apart for him. Ezra chapter 9. 
After these things had been done, the leaders came, and, uh, came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the, uh, the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak. I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord, my God, and prayed. And then these are the words of Ezra that he prays. Oh my God, I am so ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins and has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, O oh our God, what can we say after this? For we have disregarded the commands you have gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its people. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and you have given us a remnant like this. Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? O oh Lord, God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. Friends, a question that I want to ask you is simply this. When you recognize that you are in sin or that you have been unfaithful to God, what do you feel? What do you recognize? Does it even bother you? Do you go to God in repentance? Do you ask him for forgiveness, mercy, and grace? Or do you just keep on moving forward and saying, oh, that's fine, it doesn't matter. 
Friends, this is an amazing part of the story that I want to show you about how Ezra goes forward and goes before God and says, Lord, forgive us, for we are in sin. What's the godly response when we recognize that we are in sin? The first thing that I want you to see, particularly in the first couple of verses, is this, that we should be able to recognize from Scripture when we are in sin. Friends, there's a reason that we have the Bible and I want to be very careful. I'm not trying to be legalistic, and the last thing I want is people going around being sin police. Examine the plank in your own eye first. But friends, are we encouraging one another? Are we examining our heart? Are we examining our walk before God? And when we recognize from Scripture that we are acting in a manner that is not holy, does it break our hearts? Do we even read scripture? Do we even look and see? Are our hearts desiring to be set apart for God? We look at this and I want to encourage you. We kind of look and we say, well, what's the big deal here? We don't necessarily understand. Now, first and foremost, I want to let you know that obviously back during this time, culture and things were different. The people of God were set apart. They were told, commanded, not to intermarry. Now the reason for that is not racial purity. It's religious purity. The reason behind it was that if they began to bring in other cultures and intermingle with them, those cultures, those ideas, and those gods would be brought in and you would have essentially God as glob, not God as holy. Now, why is this important? Well, if we remember, we look back at the command that was given in Deuteronomy. And the command that was given was do not anger intermingle. I want to take a minute and I want to show this to you. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4, it says, Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to the sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will serve other gods. There's the warning right there. I'm just telling you this. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and, you, uh, and will quickly destroy you. Way back in Deuteronomy, way before Isaiah, the command is given, do not intermarry. Be holy. Why? Religious purity. And the people of God kind of look, and what do they do? They commit the same thing that Adam and Eve do in the garden. You can have the whole garden. You can have the whole place. You can have all that I've given to you. Just do not eat from the, what? Tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what do they do? Oh, that looks good. And they're tempted to do so. Same thing. God says, I've given you this land. I have blessed you. I have prospered you. But what I'm telling you is do not intermarry. And so what do the people of God do? They begin to intermarry. They intermarry. That leads to sin. That leads to Isaiah coming and saying, hey, you're not holy. Boom, set up for the entire aspect of the book of Ezra. So, what happens? God's people are exiled. God is faithful, brings them back, restores them. They're doing well. All is good. And the next thing you know, Ezra discovers what? They're doing the exact same thing that caused them 
to be in exile in the first place. I want to take a minute, and I just want to show you, if you have your, your hands, take your, your Bibles. Um, and I just, I, I find this so interesting. Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites, right? That's what we see in Ezra. Now, if you would, do me a favor. We're going to turn to Deuteronomy 7. Got to find my spot here. Okay. We're going to start at just verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you your many nations, the Hittites, Gergesites, Ammonites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And then when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Hence the passage today. Now this isn't God being mean. This is God saying you are a holy set apart people for my glory, my honor, and my name's sake. And we flip over to Ezra and we see essentially the exact same people that they are intermarrying and intermingling with. A few names have changed, but that's just because time has changed and those nations have become or been renamed. They're doing the same thing. Now, why is this important? Because, friends, we should recognize from Scripture when we are in sin. Ezra sees this. Ezra, as we know, is a scribe. He is learned in, essentially, the Scriptures of the day. And he looks and he says, this can't happen. We can't do this because we are disobeying the command given by God. And the reason that we were sent into exile is because of what we're doing here. And so we look and we see that, oh gosh, that seems like a pretty harsh response. But all Ezra is doing is he's saying, I don't want the relationship that we have with God that has taken so long to be restored to fall apart again because we're not listening to his commands. So first and foremost, friends, we should be able to recognize from Scripture when we are in sin. But then we need to go further than that. We don't need to just recognize it. But it should cut to our heart. Friends, it's one thing to know it in the Bible. It's a one thing to see it in the Bible. It's a whole other thing to be convicted by it and to have it break our hearts and draw us closer to God. And so the next thing that I want to show you particularly is Ezra's response, and that is this, that when we recognize we are in sin, the godly response is to mourn over it, not to placate it, not to pass it by. Ezra essentially says, okay, now, if you want to do this, it's fine, okay, but you don't have to tear your tunic and your cloak. But this is an act of mourning. This is an act of grief. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Ah, no, this is not what I want for myself and for God's people. We're called to be set apart. 
than everyone who trembled at the words of God. Okay, notice that. That's why we should remember Scripture. Hey, Ezra, what's going on? Well, here's the words of God. Oh, you're right. Deuteronomy says we're not supposed to intermarry. Holy, we're in trouble. Gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell to my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. Friends, I, I... I want to ask you this. Do we even care when we're reading scripture and it convicts us of our sin? Do do we even take a moment and say, oh my gosh, Lord, forgive me for what I've done? Friends, I want to just ask some simple questions. When we're struggling with an addiction, when we're looking at alcoholism, when we're looking at drug addiction, Men, when we're struggling with pornography. Ladies, when we're struggling with gossip. When the world is so filled with lust, greed, anger, malice, envy, etc., etc., and we find that in and of ourselves, does it bother us? Now, I'm not saying that we have to be perfect, and please hear me, I'm not asking that we all now become the sin police. But friends, does it grieve our hearts? Does it cause us to say, oh my Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. Does it cause us to look and realize the great cost that Christ paid so that we can have eternal life? Or friends, do we just keep moving forward and say, oh, that's fine, no big deal. I'm not sinning as bad as the other guy over there. You should see him or her. I'm not that bad. Friends, Ezra's response at this time seems like it's almost too much over the top. But if you recognize Ezra's heart for what's going on and his desire for the Lord, his response is wholly appropriate. He's saying, I don't want us to fall back. I don't want to go in exile again. I don't want to be separated from you, God. I don't want another 70 years. I want to be with you. And Father, forgive us because we've become complacent in our living. We've become complacent in our lives. And yet, thank you for your mercy and your grace. One of the things that I think is so great, and I can't say it better, but Charles Haddon Spurgeon says this, when we think too lightly of sin, we think too lightly of the Savior. Take a minute and soak that in. That's a sermon in and of itself. When we think too lightly of sin, we think too lightly of our Savior. The whole reason that we have a Savior is because of our sin. The whole reason we have a Savior is because of our sin, and the reason He's a Savior is we cannot save ourselves from our sin. But Jesus can, and He does, and He did, and He will. And so friends, what I want to tell you is this, when you are in sin, I want you to look at the cross, and I want you to recognize the cost that it took all of us, myself included, to be able to stand before God without fear of that sin because of what Jesus has done. 
Friends, this is the moment where our walk becomes real. And I'm not standing up here self-righteous. Trust me, I have sins in my life and I am grateful for the grace and mercy of God. But in those moments where I'm convicted of them, I pray that God breaks me of them, that I mourn them, and that my heart is to change. I'm not saying that day, sometimes it's a battle. But friends, what I wanna tell you is this, when you are convicted of a sin, does it draw your heart to change? Does it draw you to go before God and say, Lord, I want to be yours. I want to be holy. I want to be different. Or do we just keep moving forward and say, ah, it's fine. God's grace and mercy will cover it. Friends, when we think too lightly of sin, we think too lightly of the Savior. And the next thing that I want to throw out at you is another great Martin Luther, and that is simply this. The recognition of sin is the beginning of salvation. If we do not recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior, if we do not realize that we are not able to get to God on our own, if we do not realize that we are dead in our sins, we do not understand salvation. If we're okay and you're okay and Jesus exists to make an okay person better, then why in the world does he need to go to the cross? But if we are dead in our sin, if we cannot to get, get to God on our own, if we are drowning in it and need a savior and God in his life-giving action throws us the line through the cross so that we may have eternal life, then salvation is all. And friends, when we are saved from our sin because of what Christ has done, then when we are found in sin, it should grieve and break our hearts toward God. Friends, when we recognize we, we are in sin, the godly response is to mourn over it. We see Ezra, and he tears his cloak and he mourns and he begins to pray. Oh my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. Not a good thing. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. He's going back and remembering God, we've not been faithful to you. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity. Friends, what I want to tell you is simply this. The grace and mercy of God is wonderful, and God's grace and mercy is unbelievable. But what I will tell you is, is there is always a consequence for your sin. The consequence here for the people of God was exile being subject to the sword. Friends, the consequence for your sins, whatever they might be, will be there. Do not think that you can hide from God and not receive a consequence. God's grace and mercy is always there. And praise God for his grace and mercy. But there is a consequence when we sin. Wow. 
we pick up kind of the middle part of verse 7. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliations at the hand of the foreign kings as it is today. Friends, it should grieve us when we are found in sin, when we are in Scripture and we read and it is blank right there staring us in the face, convicting us. What I want to tell you is this. You have two options. You can either go to God and say, Lord, forgive me and be forgiven, or you can go and say, I don't think that part's in the Bible, and try to take it away. What do you choose? And here's what I want to show you. When we move forward and ask for forgiveness, God's grace and mercy is new each and every morning. That's what makes God so great. And that's what we see in just a minute as Ezra will pray. Number one, we should be able to recognize from Scripture when we are in sin. Number two, when we recognize we are in sin, the godly response, the godly response is to mourn over it. But then, also, when we recognize we, we are in sin, the godly response is to rest in the kindness and mercy of God. I want to be very clear on this, and I want to show this to you in just a minute. What we see here is Ezra is mourning what the people of God have done. He is recognizing the severity of the sin of what they are engaging in and if they continue to engage in the potential consequences that may incur. And then he turns and he says, but now, okay, I've said this before, whenever there's a but in the Bible, there's a reason, it's a transition, it's a statement, a change. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in sanctuary. And our God gives light to our eyes. Okay, NIV translated it this way, other translations, basically God in his loving kindness gives light to our eyes and little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. Right there, friends, is the statement of salvation. We are slaves, but God has not abandoned us, and he will deliver us in our bondage. Rest in the grace and the mercy of God. What do I mean by this? Oftentimes when we're convicted in sin, the next thing that we want to see is the enemy wants to come forward and say what? You're not good enough. See, you can't do this. See, God doesn't love you. See, God won't forgive you. See, God's not big enough to get you through this, right? Enemy wants nothing more than to come forward and say, yep, you sinned, you're going to stay in bondage, it's done. There isn't a redemptive God, there isn't a God who cares, there isn't a God who's gone to the cross for you, who's died for your sins so that you might be forgiven. So what I want to tell you is this, don't allow the enemy to think that your sins cannot be defeated or that they are unforgivable. The grace and mercy of God transcends all. The only sin that is unforgivable is what? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So what I want to tell you is this. I don't know your sins. I'm not telling you that you need to tell me what they are. God knows them. But right now if you're sitting there and you're saying, my goodness, Trevor, if I told you what I'm struggling with, 
I don't know that God would be able to love me. I can tell you this. He does and he will. Period. No matter what it is. But your sin should cause you to grieve. Your sin should draw you to God. Your sin should cause you to rest in the mercy and grace of God. And here's why. When you rest in the mercy and grace of God because you recognize the severity of your sin, oh, the much greater the mercy and grace of God is. And that's what I want to show you. He continues on in verse 10, and he says again, but now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have disregarded the commands you gave us through your servants and the prophets when you said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Not a good thing. He's saying, you know what? This isn't just little, like we've really messed up here. This isn't good. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them. Do we remember back to Ezra 6 when basically people are coming forward and they're saying, hey, let us help you? And they say, "Uh uh-uh. Oops. Oops. Not good. And then we continue on. And we realize, kind of middle part of 12, do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. Ooh. Not only do my sins affect me, but my sins affect others. Guys, I'm going to get real for a minute. How many right now are struggling with pornography? I don't need a show of hands, but I know statistically in the church that men struggle greatly with that problem. And what I want to tell you is this. You're not just hurting yourself. You're hurting your wife. You're hurting your children. You're hurting your inheritance. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to tell you that there's no way out. But what I am telling you is recognize the complexity and the magnitude of that sin. Go to the Lord. Cry out to him and be broken of it and be free and receive the mercy and grace of God. We continue on, and we see in verses 13, what has happened to us as a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt, okay? Recognition. How many of you these days see people give an apology, right? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry that I did this, but, you know, it was that person that made me do it. Oh, I'm sorry that I did this, but it was this. It's not an apology. 
friends, an apology, a recognition is, I am guilty for what I have done. Forgive me. Ownership. My shoulders. My issue. What has happened to us is a result of, well, it's a result of, God, you know what? You didn't feed us on time. You didn't do what we needed. You weren't there. So we kind of felt that we needed to do this, so it's your fault, God. Right? No. It is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet... The whole point that's being made here in these verses is that when we recognize that we are a sin, the godly response is to rest in the kindness and mercy of God. Well, as we're going to see, because the kindness and mercy of God, we should turn away from our sin. It's because that we receive kindness and mercy from him that we can go to him and say, God, forgive me, and we are forgiven. That our sins are cast as far as from the east is from the west. That we are pure and righteous and holy before God because of what Christ has done. It should cause us to want to turn away, or the word is repent. I don't want this anymore, God. I don't want this in my life. I don't want this thing that's drawing me away from you. I want you, and I want more of you in my life and less of whatever it is that's drawing me from you. Don't make the same mistake twice. Verse 14. Shall we again... Don't miss this. Shall we again? We did it once. We're doing it again. We had a huge consequence. Shall we do this again? It's destroying who we are and our relationship with you. Shall we again do this? Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough? Okay, rhetorical, but... Very serious question. To destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor. Oh Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. Friends, the righteousness of God should be at the forefront of our minds when we are in sin. The holiness of God should be at the forefront of our minds when we are in sin. We are holy, set apart people, and God has commanded what? I am holy, therefore what? Be holy. O Lord, God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though uh, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. We can't stand in your presence, God, because we are in sin. Yet, what does God do? He doesn't say, that's it, you're right, get out of here. End of story. We're going to end the whole entire news of the gospel at Ezra chapter 9, verse 15. No, he says, come to me. Come to me. Come to me. To the point that he gives us a Savior who saves us from our sins so that we might be righteous before God. Friends, what I want to tell you is this. 
we can rest in the mercy and grace of God. We can believe and have the grace and mercy of God. But I also want to tell you this. I love this, this statement. A true Christian desires to be free from sin, not sin freely. Think about that for a minute. I want to ask you a very serious question. Is there a sin in your life where you're just sitting there saying, no big deal, the grace and mercy of God will cover it. I'm saved, I don't need to worry about it. God will take care of it. God's taking care of it. I can just kind of continue keeping in sin. I'm going to sin freely, et cetera, et cetera. I am not God. But what I want to tell you lovingly is if you have that attitude, then I don't know you understand what Christ has done so that you might be saved. We should desire to be free from it. Yes, we are free from it. We have been declared righteous, but we are also being set apart or sanctified as we walk with God. And friends, our trajectory after having come to Christ should be one of which we turn from our sins and turn toward holiness. And if you disagree, I leave you with the words of Paul. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. This is like the most resounding. This is like absolutely not. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Friends, you are dead to sin because of what Christ has done. Because you are dead to sin, you have been declared righteous and you are free. Yet we continue in this world to struggle with sin. That sin should cause us to mourn or to grieve and we should want to be free from it. We shouldn't just placate it or ride the coattails of mercy and grace, although God is a gracious and merciful God. And so this morning... As we look at Ezra, and as we move to chapter 10, if you have some time this week, I encourage you to see what happens in chapter 10. We've talked about repentance times 10. Chapter 10 is repentance times 100. It draws the people of God to say, we want to be yours. But it takes the conviction of the sins that the people are in to say, we've got to change We've got to be different. We need to ask God for forgiveness. Take home truth. I just want to say this for you. I'm going to go kind of slow because there's a lot to write in. Friends, uh, the godly response towards sin, the godly response towards sin is to recognize it from Scripture, to mourn over it, then in mourning over it, rest in the kindness and mercy of God, and because of that kindness and mercy, because of being forgiven by God, because of being declared righteous because of what Christ has done, then to turn away from it, to repent, to no longer desire it and desire more of God. 
That's what we see in the book of Ezra. That's the whole story of what's going on. That's the whole point of this book. To draw people to God, to a life of holiness because of what God has done. To a life that is more of God and less of the world. The godly response towards sin is to recognize it from Scripture, to mourn over it, to rest in the kindness and mercy of God, and because of that kindness and mercy, turn away from it. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you this morning, and we thank you for texts like this. Lord, this is not an easy one. This is not a feel-good text. This is a convicting text. But Father, in that conviction, we also find restoration. We find your goodness, your mercy, and your grace. And Lord, in those moments where we discover that there perhaps there is a sin in our life of which we need to come to you and ask for forgiveness, may we have the courage to do so, recognizing that when we do, you are good and gracious and you forgive our sin and cast it, as you say in your word, as far as the east is from the west. We are forgiven and it is forgotten. And Lord, because of that, then may our hearts be drawn more toward you. And as we discover more and more of your grace, your mercy, and your love, may our hearts desire to be holy and turn away from sin. We thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus, and we ask it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say.